knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why Midway USA offers super fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. I have a great idea. Let's cancel the most successful conservation program in the history of the world. That's a great idea. How, how did you come up with that, Bill? <laughs> well, I read it somewhere. Seems like someone's had it, and, and we got to talk about it, man. Yeah, uh, Representative Clyde, uh, Clyde down in Georgia introduced a bill called the Return Act, where he tries to repeal much of the Pittman-Robertson and Dingle-Johnson excise taxes on ammunition and fishing equipment, uh, guns, ammunition, fishing equipment, as we all know it, right? The, the stuff that's taxed that puts all of its money back into wildlife conservation. Now, why would he go and do that? You know, we on the show, we're going to talk about it, and there, there are a whole lot of uh, uh, thoughts, but one of them is he kind of makes part of his living off of selling firearms. <laughs> That's what one guy says. Yeah, and I don't know. I, I tend to think he's probably just misinformed um, and doesn't understand what this I, I, is. I think it's uh, yeah, ideology in conflict with reality and, and in conflict with what we as sportsmen actually want the people paying the tax we want it yeah so hopefully our listeners have already heard about the return act and how terrible it is but what we wanted to do is get some folks on who both know the ins and outs of Pittman robertson dingle johnson and then can help you understand and unpack this bill the return act um, so we had on david wilms who's a senior advisor at national wildlife federation uh wildlife advisor at the National Wildlife Federation and the host, uh, one of the co-hosts of Your Mountain Podcast, some of you probably heard. And then we had on Mike Butler, the chief executive officer from the Tennessee Wildlife Federation, your state there, Bill. And we just unpacked this thing and we're trying to give folks a little bit more information and knowledge and hope that we can just kill this thing uh, as soon as possible because it's uh, one of the worst pieces of legislation affecting the wildlife conservation and sporting community that's been around in a long time. It's the cornerstone of, of North American wildlife conservation. Cornerstone. Yeah, so the attack on that is obviously something we're going to care about quite a bit. So have a listen to this and get engaged. Uh, enjoy this podcast with David Wilms and Mike Butler. Since 1936, the National Wildlife Federation has worked with hunters and anglers to pass the most important conservation laws of American history and to protect our sporting traditions. This podcast explores our history, our values, and the work we do to safeguard the fish and wildlife that fuel our passions. We are NWF Outdoors. 
Howdy, everybody, and welcome to the NWF Outdoors podcast. This is your host, Aaron Kindle, with my co-host, Hanging By. What's happening, Big Bill? Man, I am sitting in a New Orleans hotel room after meetings all day, and I am so excited for this conversation. <laughs> Good. I bet you're, you're cool, actually, because you're sitting in a room down there in the South right now. That's right. <laughs> Well, good. Right. Today, we're going to have an interesting conversation. It's it's about something that we think probably most of the sporting community has heard about by now. I hope I hope they have. I hope everybody's all ears on this one. There was a bill introduced in Congress uh, recently called the Return Act, and I don't know exactly what the uh, the acronym can stand for. Stands for. We'll, we'll get into that. We'll figure it out. But it's been introduced by uh, Representative Clyde in Georgia, and it and it's. What I would describe, and what we're what we're really thinking about it as, is a is a big attack on Pittman Robertson, and so we're going to talk about that today with two guests, and I'm going to introduce them real quick here. But first, I'll just give them a chance to say hi. First, I have Mike Butler, and he's from Tennessee. He's the executive director of the Tennessee Wildlife Federation, or the chief executive officer. Sorry, Mike, chief executive officer of the Tennessee Wildlife Federation. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks Welcome. for having me. We appreciate me on. your perspective on this. I know you know as much as uh, as most on this subject. And then we have Dave David Wilms, and he's the senior director of Western Wildlife for for our organization, the National Wildlife Federation. Co-hosts his own podcast. Uh, well, not his own. He he has a couple co-hosts uh, called Your Mountain. So he's a podcast professional. What's happening today, Dave? Uh, sorry, I had to laugh for a second when you called me a podcast professional. I uh, appreciate being here. This is a really timely and important topic, so I, I'm, I'm really glad to be able to be here. Well, we're glad to have you. And I'm just going to first just tell people a little bit about uh, David and, and Mike before we get going. You know, Dave, I mentioned he's Senior Director of Western Wildlife for, for NWF. He leads our public lands program now. Uh, prior to that, he he worked for Governor Matt Mead in Wyoming. He was the policy advisor for Matt Mead, working on all kinds of things, wildlife related, endangered species, recreation. And he's also an attorney uh, by, by practice, um, used to work for a law firm or two, and he specialized in a lot of natural resource issues. And he really knows a lot about what we're going to talk about today, and I'm, and I'm glad he's here. Uh, and he, I, I guess he should say he teaches other people about this stuff too. He's an adjunct professor at the University of Wyoming's Hobbs School of Environment and Natural Resources. So that'll come in handy. And uh, he was recently got a chance to go over to England, uh, I know, because he's a Cambridge University fellow and got to go over there and practice some, some wow. uh, debate and all kinds of good stuff. Maybe he can tell us a little story about that. But uh, that's David. And let's jump over to Mike. He's a he's a Tennessean. He's been in Tennessee most all of his life, except for a few sojourns to some other places. Um, he's been the how how long have you been the the ED or chief over there at Tennessee Wildlife Federation, Mike? I know it's been a long time. I was appointed chief in two thousand two, wow. so twenty years as chief, but I've been here in the organization oh, excellent. for 26. Uh, that's, that's good. We're glad to have you. He's been just a, a tireless wildlife advocate in Tennessee, but beyond too. I mean, I, I talk to people from other states and they know Mike and he's done a lot of work around the country. Uh, he, he went off to school in Montana for a little while, Montana State University, got his master's in science 
in fish and wildlife management at Montana State University, and then came back in 1996, started there jumping in with Tennessee Wildlife Federation. He's, he's involved in about everything you can think of in, in Tennessee conservation and beyond. He's a member of the Tennessee Valley Authority's Regional Energy Resource Council, the Lone Oaks Farm Advisory Committee, uh, University of Tennessee Department of Forestry, Wildlife and Fisheries Board, the Governor Lee's Asian Carp Task Force, all kinds of different things. He's uh, He served as a, a board of trustees for the Morris K. Udall and Stuart Udall Foundation for six or so years as an appointee of President Bush. So he's also just a highly esteemed and accredited uh, wildlife professional. So glad to have both of you. And we always start this, this podcast by asking folks what they've been doing outside because, of course, that's why we're all here. Ultimately, we love the resource. So let's start with you first, David. Tell us what you've been up to. Well, so my summers are all about getting myself conditioned for big game hunting in the fall. So I've been doing a lot of peak bagging uh, for the past month here as the snow has been coming off of the the mountains here in the Rockies. Uh, I've I've touched the top of several uh, big mountains and I've got another couple trips uh, yet to go. But it's all, you know, get a lot of weight on my back, put a lot of of elevation uh, on and climbing on my legs and get myself ready to hopefully pack out a whole bunch of elk parts this fall. That's pretty awesome. I have to give you a little bit of hell here because, you know, you're from Wyoming and we hear a lot of complaints about the green platers, the Coloradans in Wyoming. But man, it sure seems like a lot of your adventures involve coming down to Colorado. What, what gives there? Uh, there's there's so many green plates that have uh, that have come into Wyoming and taken over all of my places that it's actually opened up a few spots in Colorado oh, for me. Uh, we're, we're, so, uh, so I, I found a few, uh, a few honey holes there in, in parts of Colorado that, uh, are maybe neglected by Coloradans a little bit. Um, and I still do a lot in Wyoming. I'm going, I'm going on a big trek through the, uh, the Grovant range, uh, east of Jackson hole here in a couple of weeks and, uh, definitely still do a bunch of Wyoming, but yeah, you've probably yeah. noticed I, I've spent some time in, in Colorado for sure. You have some pretty parts in your state. I'm not going to deny that. <laughs> well, I had to give you a little bit of trouble there because, you know, as a Wyoming native plus someone who lives in Colorado, I, I know that that little rivalry well. And uh, I, I, I can't let you escape without that. How about you, Mike? Any, what you been up to out there in Tennessee? Is it too hot to get out or what are you doing? No, it's been pretty nice. Um, let's see. Most recently, I took my daughter and a friend down the road to the Harpeth River, the South Harpeth, and... They did a little wade fishing and caught some smallies. And then last night, uh, I dispatched a couple of armadillos that were digging in my front pasture. <laughs> and then uh, let's see, what else happened? Oh, we went up and uh, looked at a big farm with some board members uh, yesterday evening, had dinner with landowners. We're, we're talking to up, up uh, north of us a little bit. So been a been a good week so far can't can't complain the weather we got humidity below 50 percent and temperatures no higher than about 90 91 which is rare for this part of the world in july so enjoying it while we can well good that doesn't sound too bad either thanks for that what about you big bill i know you're down in new orleans now but and you're across the state from mike but you know how's it been in tennessee right but uh 
it, it's been great in Tennessee. Like I told you before, Kentucky Lake, where I do so much of my fishing, is actually kind of staging a comeback on our fishery, and it, it's really exciting. I know it's dear to Mike's heart, too. So the 4th of July, you know, that whole week we were off, and that was really cool because I spent every day on the water. We bass fished. Uh, the willow flies were hatching, so we caught brim under fly hatches on fly rods, and it, it's just a hoot this time of year when things are working right. What about you? Well, that's good news. I'm glad to hear you're getting out too. Uh, I've been doing all the same kind of stuff. If folks know who watch this, who listen to this podcast, that we took a hiatus. We didn't have a podcast uh, on our last regular interval because National Wildlife Federation uh, offers us a summer break, and we took it. And uh, I got uh, I got five days in the in the wilderness with my boy backpacking. So that was really awesome. The fishing is is starting to be really good. The the rivers are all calmed down and getting into their later summer flows and not too hot yet. So it's a perfect time for fishing around here. We caught uh, more cutthroats than we could possibly even count when we were up mm. in the wilderness in some high mountain lakes. So that was pretty awesome. And uh, just doing things like that, summer stuff, trying to keep cool. It's not quite as hot as you guys, but hot enough for me. So keeping cool <laughs> and, and doing the good work that we have to keep doing. And that's what we're here to talk about today. Um, so first, you know, this bill that we're seeing that we're all so upset about is really the, the main reason we're, we're so upset is it takes a shot at what I think all of us would probably universally agree is perhaps the seminal piece of conservation legislation that has really defined, you know, particularly sporting conservation over the last 85 years or so. And that's the Pittman-Robertson Act. And I'm going to turn it to David Wilms first because he's wearing a shirt and he can tell tell us about this. This is how much he loves this this particular bill that that's helped us for 85 years. He's wearing a shirt. Tell us about the shirt and then maybe give us a little background on what is the Pittman-Robertson Act, just as a refresher? Uh, sure. So the, the shirt is uh, is my ode to the Pittman-Robertson Act. Right? It's a Pittman-Robertson Act shirt. The design on it kind of makes it look like the front of a beer can. And uh, at the bottom of it, it calls the, the act the, uh, uh, the, the... Let me see if I get it. I want to get it right. The champagne of taxes. Right. Uh, it's, it's brought, it's brought in taxes were champagne because the, act, because the act is brought in over at this point, I want to say it's close to, uh, somewhere between 15 and $20 billion, yeah. uh, over the life of the act, uh, for conservation on the ground. Um, but if you want me to lay the, the foundation for why do we have it, or do you want to say what, what it is? Yeah, both. Just, you know, give us the 101 for folks who, you know, I know everybody's pretty much heard of it, but, you know, we have to remind ourselves once in a while because it's been around for so long what it is, what it does, how it helps conservation. Yeah. So, so I'd say take yourself back to the early part of the 20th century uh, to kind of frame up why we have this in the first place. And, you know, a lot of people might not realize this, but the hunting community, I'm sure does, that we all know about the Endangered Species Act, right? And, if we had an Endangered Species Act back in the early 1900s, early part of the 20th century, things like mule deer and elk and wild turkey and black bear, ducks, and all these species that we see in so much abundance today would have probably been listed 
as threatened or endangered under that act. They're really struggling. And states were in their infancy of putting together wildlife agencies and game wardens and management schemes. And they were just starting to sell licenses uh, in volume. And you had this situation occurring where the, the states were in their infancy, but uh, uh, the wildlife agencies, but the state governments, the legislatures were seeing this revenue coming in. And they're like, well, we still have to pay for schools and roads and, you know, all these, all this other infrastructure. And they were taken, they were, you know, admittedly, they were dipping into those funds and using those funds uh, to pay for other things, not, not unimportant things. They were important things, but they were using this money that was generated by, by wildlife uh, from the wildlife resource and putting it to other uses. So, uh, uh, you know, along in the, comes in the 1930s and there's a whole lot of history we can get into if you want but along come the 1930s and you have conservation groups from all across the country coming together uh and saying look we need to do something uh to to create a permanent formal funding source for wildlife management for states to manage wildlife in this country and it, enter the Pittman-Robertson Act. There was there was actually an excise tax that existed on firearms beginning in 1919, and that was just going into the general treasury. And I identified this as a as a way that hunters and anglers, the ones that are really paying that excise tax, that you could create a fund to take that money that's generated off that excise tax on firearms and ammunition, create a wildlife trust fund, and then have that go back to the states each, you know, back to individual states to be able to actually manage their wildlife. And the beauty of it was there was a condition placed on that money, right? The condition was the state, that the states could no longer divert that state revenue, those license dollars coming in. If you want to get that, the the Pittman-Robertson, what we know is Pittman-Robertson now, you want to get that money, you had to stop diverting. You could no longer divert the money that the states were bringing in from license sales. So it created effectively two permanent revenue streams through one federal act. It created the permanent revenue stream of license dollars coming in from selling deer and and bird and, you know, hunting licenses, right? And it it matched that with these dollars coming in from the sale uh, of firearms and ammunition. And that Pittman-Robertson fund has over time is in a lot of states is 40 or 50% of a state agency's budget, to be able to manage the wildlife resources of that state. Federal government's not telling you how to manage the wildlife. Money's going back to the states. States are making the decisions. But they got to keep the money they're raising that they're 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 getting from selling licenses. And then they can leverage those dollars with the dollars coming from the Pittman Robertson fund, you know, from this the Pittman Robertson Act, and and actually have a pretty robust permanent funding source to manage wildlife. And its success was bringing all of these species I mentioned at the beginning that were teetering on the brink back in the early part of the 20th century to a point where we have, we're like, we're in the golden age of elk right now because of some of this stuff, for example, where I live, right? Uh, we've, it's been a remarkable success story. Well, you know, when I heard about this deal, the first phone call I made was to Mike Butler. I mean, literally the second I read it, I picked up the phone and called Mike because we're in the same state. And I know Mike is about as tied in within our state on, on what's going on and, and finances and that sort of thing for, you know, the 
Wildlife Resources Agency. Mike, talk talk a little bit about what it means, say, in the state of Tennessee. We talked, you know, David talked about it's a big percentage. What does it mean to us and maybe other states too? Bill, it's it's significant. I mean, if I I, I pulled up the numbers a while back, you know, our wildlife agency in Tennessee has somewhere in the ninety to $95 million annual budget somewhere in that neighborhood. It's, it's, it's hard to peg down sometimes because they carry money forward year over year. Or they have less they carry forward, but that's the, roughly the, the ballpark. PR, just Pittman-Robertson alone, not talking about Dingle Johnson. The allocation for PR this last uh, time was $31 million. And I believe Dingle Johnson was around eight nine eight point six million. So you're looking, you're you're pushing the neighborhood of forty million dollars on a ninety to ninety five million dollar yeah. budget. So almost forty percent of the budget, or right at forty percent of the budget, is wow. It's a big, big chunk, big, big chunk. Now that the PR allocation is, I think it broke out twenty six million. Um, I think it was roughly 24 to 26 million for the wildlife restoration side, then the Hunter Ed piece and the other bumped it all the way up to 31. I think another thing that's important about this thing is, you know, you don't hear hunters, anglers, shooters grumbling about paying this tax. (laughs) You know, it's not something that people go around going, man, I'm paying this tax. It's kind of a built-in thing. I mean, you might find somebody, but... It's a built-in thing that I think most are proud to pay. You know, uh, let's talk about that a little. You know, with the with the history of PR, it's been around for a long time. It's it's you know generated all this revenue. People just kind of assimilated into how they do their, you know, their activities. You know, you kind of talked about what it's done, David. But like, what would it look like if we didn't have something like this? What would states be dealing with? An unbelievably big budget gap that most states probably cannot fill, right? And we, one thing we already know is even with, even with the current funding we have, we're still looking for more. We're turning over couch cushions all the time trying to find more funding to help these states manage the wildlife. There, there's Every year there's additional strains put on the wildlife resource in every single state and additional demands uh, for management. And we're, we're, you know, we're trying to fix that. I mean, y- y- you want to talk about something pretty catastrophic for a state wildlife agency, you know, take away 40, 50% of their, their funding. You know, they can't get biologists out in the field collaring animals, doing research on things. Um, you know, maybe they can't even do th- basic things like check stations or have enough wardens to do enforcement. You know, maybe you risk poaching going up. Maybe you can't do the same habitat improvement projects you might have been doing in the past. Maybe you're not getting that boat ramp this year. You know, your access opportunities could go down. And don't forget the other thing here is, you know, it, it contributes to being able to have lower license fees, too. Right. For, for, you know, one of the one of the great things about being able to hunt, at least as a resident, I know we all charge non-residents to come to our state uh, a little bit more. But for residents, we try and keep the price uh, of, of tags as low as possible so that there's access for all and opportunity for all to be able to hunt that want to. You take away half of the revenue stream, you're going to have to have serious conversations about what you do to license prices as well. And so it could reduce opportunity. There's so many implications for this, right? Well, and, and I would add to that, Dave, you know, when you look at a state wildlife agency's budget, 
a, a sizable chunk of it's going to be for law enforcement. PR cannot be used to pay for law enforcement as a general rule. So when you look at what proportion of an agency's budget that is, when you've already limited it to where it can't be spent on law enforcement, they have to use state-generated license dollars to cover law enforcement for the most part. Then the, the piece of the pie that 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 forty million or thirty nine million here in Tennessee is going to pay for, it becomes more than forty percent. So so the the impact of it is is expanded or magnified, if you will. And to your point. Um, the management of waterfowl areas, the management of public lands that the agency owns, the ability to acquire any additional public lands, uh, take your pick. There's a myriad of things that would just get absolutely uh, crushed uh, under the weight of losing these dollars. Let, let, let me say something and ask a quick question, because I'd say one of the positives of this whole deal happening right now it, I know I've had the opportunity to talk to sportsmen who really hadn't either hadn't heard of Pittman Robertson or if they had, they just, as you said, no one's griping. So it, it just happens. And so a lot of people are getting educated and that's a positive thing. Um, but one thing I get asked, I, people say, I've never seen it on a receipt. I mean, how is this, where's this coming from? So how's it paid? How's it funded? I mean, who pays it? How, when do they pay it? That sort of thing. Yeah, you won't see it on a receipt, right? It's you know, it's a manufacturer's tax. So the the, the largest single payer of um, the uh, of excise tax to the Pittman Robertson fund is actually federal premium ammunition. So that that it's the manufacturer of the ammunition and the firearm that pays the excise tax and passes that price, you know, that along to the consumer. Right. So you're not going to walk into a sporting goods store and buy a box of ammunition and see a, a line item for 11% there for your your contribution. But you're paying it. Like it's, sure. it's passed along from the manufacturer. Yeah, I think before we leave this, this PR conversation, we ought to say one other thing. Uh, a lot of people have also heard about the North American model of, of wildlife conservation and its tenants. And let's talk a little bit about how PR supports that because – you know, one of the things I think Americans, we, we take for granted a little is how amazing we really have it. The ability to hunt and fish every year, you know, abundant game. This thing is really one of the, one of the legs of the stool when, we, when we're talking about why that is. And, and it's standing as the envy of the world that like folks across the planet wish they had it as good as us. And I'll say one more thing before I let either Mike or David say that is – should also note that National Wildlife Federation came into its inception with this issue on the table and was a chief architect and basically rode this thing across the finish line uh, when we were founded. And so this is kind of a, a bookend for us, right? Like we brought this thing to bear with, with a lot of other partners, of course, but we're obviously adamantly going to defend that um, and, for, and all that it's meant over our history. Uh, but, but, David or Mike, talk a little bit about that that conservation model and why PR is so integral to that. Well, you know, I think that's a great point. You know, the 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 beginning of the modern conservation movement in our country started with President uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's calling of the 1937 
Wildlife Congress at the Mayflower Hotel in, in Washington, D.C., and that North American conference that took place was a broad array of representation from uh, garden clubs to sportsmen's groups to individual sportsmen. And out of that meeting came essentially the foundations of all of the pieces of our, our modern conservation movement. The founding of National Wildlife Federation came out of that uh, that meeting. And in 37, you will remember, that's the year Pittman-Robertson was passed. So you can't get more tied at the hip with uh, something being driven by a movement and making it come into reality. Because if you'll remember, anybody in, in, your, in any of your states, if you're back home and you're talking to some folks that have been around for a while, they'll tell you, it was front page news in those days when you saw a deer track in Tennessee. They just did not exist. I mean, we were largely still agrarian uh, state. Uh, we, we were very rural at the time, uh, even a lot more than we are now. And the things that that fund has paid for include the restoration of all kinds of different species. I mean, it is it is not understating it to say it is the most significant model. It's the found. It's the, it's the funding mechanism and foundational piece of the most success, successful and uh, significant model for wildlife restoration that the world has ever seen. That is not understating it. And the fact that um, some would argue that this thing is is an impingement upon the Second Amendment as the sponsor does and say that they want to replace it with more reliable funding. I don't know how you get more reliable than 85 years of consistent funding that has helped build an entire uh, backdrop for the conservation movement, for wildlife restoration, and for the people that take advantage of these opportunities. That's the other side of this. The, 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 not only are the wildlife benefiting, not only is wildlife habitat benefiting, but to a large extent, the people that utilize these wildlife benefit the most. And so, you know, you, you can sit there and, and tear it apart five different ways and you keep coming back to the, to the, the basic premise that this is such a bad idea that has been put together in the return act, uh, by the way, it stands for repealing excise tax on inalienable rights. Now, you know, which is, I just don't get me shy. We could go down. I could, I could, I could have a lot of fun. Jokes about that. We're, we're going to let you, we're going to let right. you here in a second. <laughs> I, I just want to know how much money we're talking about. Let bring that up again. How much money are we talking about? Well, and overall 1.15 billion, uh, just from the firearms tax and ammunition tax last year, Isn't that right, well, David? The latest year, yeah, yeah, yeah. Total total PR DJ uh, total money coming in about one point five, not about it was roughly one point five billion dollars in twenty twenty one. And and when you talk about it as a stable source of of funding, it's not even that it's a stable source of funding. It's that it's a growing source of funding. Before this, I went and dove into a few of the numbers, by the way. just I, I just went back 10 years, just 10, not even all the way back, but just like think where you were 10 years ago. 2012, uh, the collection from PR was 555 million. That was a record year. The year before that, in 2011, wow. it was 388 million. That was a record year. Like, it, 
this past year, 2021, was $1.5 billion uh, from, from PRDJ. Record year. I mean, what we're seeing is when you look at the, the uh, uh, just a line chart, a graph of PR money that's come in over the history, we're on almost an exponential looking curve over the past decade. Uh, and it's, you know what it is? It's because, and this is this kind of gets to the the crux of the sponsors argument a little bit. It's actually because of increased revenue coming in from record sales of firearms and ammunition over the past decade, right? Which is a great argument. They, I mean, it, it flies in the face of the argument the sponsor makes for the bill. I mean, yeah. your those data you just quoted, those dollars generated show that this tax has had zero impact. And I would argue, in fact, that we are helping grow the shooting industry through the use of these dollars. And yeah, I'll give you yeah. some hard, hard examples real quick. In Tennessee, in the last five years, our wildlife agencies probably spent around $10 million on the Greenville Range, the Lone Oaks Range, the Crossville Range, the Carroll County Range. There's two or three others. So a half a dozen multi-million dollar clay target rifle pistol shooting ranges for people, just general citizens to go and utilize. The payment for those ranges comes directly out of Pittman-Robertson dollars. And so the argument that the sponsor makes around how this works is just completely fabricated from my perspective. Yeah. And to build on that, there's there's another range, one of the most incredible ranges uh, that I've seen recently built in near Grand Junction, Colorado, uh, also using uh, Pittman-Robertson dollars. The economic impact of that range on the local community, it's such an impressive facility that people are coming from all over the country, competitive shooters are coming from all over the country to take part in competitions there and are contributing millions of dollars to the local economy, not to mention it leads to what? Buying more ammunition, you know, to participate in these types of events. So we're, we're, we're growing, to your point, not only is it growing uh, the firearms industry, uh, and the recreational shooting industry, it, it it's growing local economies. It's creating jobs. I, that's a great point. I'll give you one at-home example, and Bill, you will relate to this well. <laughs> Two weeks ago, we had our state shoot for the Tennessee Scholastic Clay Target Program. We had 2,400 middle and high schoolers come in to shoot trap, skeet, and sporting clays. And in one week, we shot over 273,000 clay targets. That's one event. Yeah. And we we have multiple events, not quite that size, but significant in that size across the state on an annual basis. And all of that goes to pay for conservation. The team I used to coach with on, under that program with the TWF puts on, the team I coached, we'd order three pallets of 12 gauge ammo every year pallets one team yeah it's incredible that's inc- and you know the other thing that that this does is if you're t- if you're coming at it from a second amendment standpoint right, it's actually by putting this money into shooting ranges and creating opportunities for competitive shooting and and training in firearms um, in addition to hopefully creating more hunters you're creating more more recreational shooters and more firearms purchasers and more people that are going to be advocates for, for second amendment protections. Right. I mean, it's, it's counterintuitive to cut that off at the knees, frankly. 
It's just, it makes no sense. <laughs> okay, let's jump over to it. And, and first, if you guys noticed David was spending more time in Colorado, <laughs> he mentioned that, you know, with the Grand Junction shooting range. Um, anyway, <laughs> let's jump over to what this thing is, the Return Act. And, and Mike spelled out the acronym. We, it, it's from this fella in Georgia. I, I, I don't know this guy very much. Uh, I don't know of him but and, and kind of why he did this. But let's talk about what it actually does mechanically because um, there are some things it doesn't just directly take away Pittman-Robertson. It kind of guts it. You know, maybe, maybe David, you can start us in on this. It's HR 8617, I believe. Um, and it's from uh, this fella, 8167. I'm sorry, I butchered that. And from Representative Clyde from Georgia. David, tell us what it does. So at a very, at a very fundamental level, everything we've been, we've been talking about, the this revenue generated from the excise tax, this I believe it's 10% on handguns, 11% on all other firearms. Um, it repeals that excise tax. It also, you know, we, we didn't talk a lot about this, but we, we have this other act out there, Dingle Johnson Act. You know, we have we have excise taxes on fishing tackle and uh, out, outboard motors and, you know, that sort of thing. And it reduces the excise tax on those. So that's the first thing it does, okay? Um, and it, it, you know, the sponsors will be and co-sponsors will quick to point out that they they try and replace that revenue. They create a, a mechanism to replace that revenue. So they don't just strip it the excise tax and say, okay, excise tax is gone, um, and there's no now there's no more funding. They they attempt to replace the funding, right? And they do it in uh, by uh, by saying. Now instead, we're gonna div- we're gonna create a, a a maximum, right? Remember how I was saying we've been seeing record revenues coming in year in and year out, and we're at one point five billion this year from the two. Well, this bill would actually create a cap of eight hundred million that could come in uh, to to Pittman Robertson. That's not replacing. That's not replacing, and it's a maximum. And in fact, when you read it, it creates two funding sources. One of them being from uh, offshore oil and gas revenues, and and uh, I'm I'm trying to I'm sort of blanking on the the second one, um, but it, it says the lesser amount of those two. So they're they've framed it in a way that you'll likely never hit that 800 million number. It's going to be something significantly less than that, but can never be more than that. So that's that's another thing that it did. And then the third piece that I think is important um, to point out, right, is that right now when these excise taxes are collected, they're deposited into a federal aid to wildlife restoration fund. That is then the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service then administers and and based on a formula, um, divvies this money out to states. It eliminates that fund and it creates a new fund and describes what the purposes of that up to 800 million can be used for. And it, it states that it can be used for, and I'm paraphrasing, but species of special concern as identified or determined by the states. Well, I don't know about you all here, but at least where I am, you know, 
I can buy three elk licenses. That's not a species of special concern here. Right? That's a species that, that is well above objective, and we're trying to figure out creative ways to manage. Right? You seem concerned with it. I, well, now I guess I am concerned because I feel like the way this is written, um, that $800 million actually wouldn't be able to go, to go back to states to be used in the way they've historically used it for managing those types of species, for having hunter education programs and, you know, and, and creating access and, you know, that sort of, that sort of thing. It would, it would really create some limitations as well. So I'll stop there though. Mike, you might have some other things that you think that you've seen about it, but those are, or that I've missed, but those are kind of the three pillars of this bill that I point out. No, I would agree with that, David, your assessment. I mean, it, the, it repeals excise taxes on firearms and ammunition, repeals excise taxes on bows and arrows, archery tackle. In other words, limits taxes imposed on fishing rods and poles that so it shall not exceed $10. And I, it's not clear whether that's per item or not. Limits tax for electric outboard motors to 3% from 10%. Limits tax rate for tackle boxes to 3% down from 10% appears to cap the replacement offset of the funding that you said the offset funding is capped at $800 million. But I think the more insidious thing that you pointed out, um, this, is, this is really bad what we're talking about on the front end about the money itself, but the purposes, that's the real problem. I, you know, I mean, they're both – real problems, but the, the purposes, redefining the purposes and, and messing with the accounting and how all that happens. I mean, right now, a state wildlife agency will put together a project. It'll have a project budget assigned to it. They will send it up to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. The Fish and Wildlife Service looks at the allocation of PR dollars to that state. This is a PR project. It has certain things it has to meet in terms of requirements. And they, when they approve that project that the agency submits, they cut a check for 75% of that budget because the states have to match 25%. So that's even another reason why this bill is, is, is – I don't know if it messes with that matching component, but the matching component in that original uh, uh, approach to PR – stretches conservation dollars another 25% by requiring it to exist. I think the key is, is that in some, I think you were alluding to this, in some states, we have fantastic wildlife agencies. In some states, we don't. And it, it is helpful to have that guidance at the federal level sometimes so that that was established in the original act to help make sure those dollars hit the ground where they're needed for the purposes they're needed. Okay. The the other thing, just one last point. Sorry, Bill. No, um, no. One last point is that I, and this is a little bit of speculation, right? But this goes back to the original purpose of one of the original purposes of of Pittman Robertson, which was, you know, to prevent the diversion of funds out of the wildlife agency to other things in the state. And if you create a fund that's that the primary purpose is is only and the, the only money that's being generated here is revenue that goes to species that maybe legislators maybe they don't care quite as much about if they're not if they're not engaged in hunting and angling right or even if they are right this money's not now going to that it's going to something else maybe they just say yeah we don't care if we get that money anymore Hmm. you know you could have some legislatures that would be inclined to just say yeah we'll divert those funds at this point i mean i I, i'm just 
what's crazy about this, okay, you have a program, no one's complaining about a tax, no one is complaining about it. In fact, we support, we're happy it's there. And, and out so out of the blue, and, and it's incredibly successful by all accounts. No one can deny that. Where did this come from? Why is it, why did it happen? Great, great question, Bill. And And I think this speaks to, some people may disagree with me on this analysis, but I think the sponsor has a clear conflict of interest um, in this piece of legislation, which, I mean, if that's one of the, the knocks you get on um, uh, a lot of elected officials these days is that they do some things that could be perceived or are actually self-serving. The sponsor owns a uh, firearms uh, retail store in Georgia, and he has more than one store. Um, I think the name is, I, I've got the name somewhere around here. I'll find it, but it's, it's, uh, something, something armory and let's face it. I mean, if you're a manufacturer and you're paying this tax at the wholesale level, what are you going to do? You're going to pass that along to your retail buyers, right? The retail buyers in turn, pass it along to the, um, uh, to the customers, so if I'm uh, the sponsor and I have a firearms store and I'm selling firearms and I get rid of the excise tax at the wholesale level, well, I'm hoping that those those providers of firearms to me that I'm buying will drop their price accordingly. They might, they might not. But in the same sense, I'm looking at, at uh, possibly keeping a little more money in my pocket. And I think that, that is, it is close enough to the line for me that it, um, it it presents something that that is is it, at the very worst a percep at the very least a perception of a conflict if not a direct conflict. But I I would defer to uh, the actual person with a law degree here to kind of tell us what his thoughts are on that. Well, never defer to a lawyer. First of all, that's the first piece of advice I can give. <laughs> um, but yeah, I I'm not having to pay you, so you know. <laughs> I would soften it from my perspective. I'd soften it just slightly. I think there's potential for there to be a conflict of interest if chips fall a certain way. Um, I'm not sure that there at this stage necessarily is. Um, a conflict of interest, but it still doesn't, it, it, you know, it, it's sort of those perception matters too. And it just looks, it, it, it kind of looks bad, right? Um, even if there isn't a conflict, it kind of looks bad. Um, but the other thing here is sort of the, the why, where did this come from? Why did this happen? Um, I think you've seen a movement in the past several years. Uh, and I don't know how far back you have to go here, but I think you've seen a movement among the uh, those that are really firmly, firmly rooted in the Second Amendment movement. Right. And, you know, this has this this argument has nothing to do with actual, in my mind, the ability to own a firearm or not. But in the argument that's being made is any tax at all on any type of firearm or ammunition uh, is an infringement upon my inalienable Second Amendment right to own a firearm. Basically, if you're taxing it, you're making it harder for me to get it, and that is unconstitutional. And there are definitely people that have a strong, strong belief in that. 
I mean, I'd obviously push back with the data that 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 shows how we're at all, you know, we're at all time high. I I I do the actual the the empirical data showing we're we're at all time highs, uh, you know, in firearm sales and ammunition sales, and that hasn't slowed down. It just keeps going up year after year. But then I do the observational data of. I can't find 30 six ammunition anywhere for my for my uh, a hunting rifle, right? Like there's no right. sh- there's no shortage of demand out there right now from my personal experience of trying to find ammunition. And and Kindle knows this because I've I've called him a number of times. Like, are you finding anything? We've had these conversations, right? Well, uh, hey, let me add to that 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 thinking because I think you're exactly right, David. Um, the the other side of this, and I'm saying this tongue in cheek, but I do mean it, is that I'm I'm looking at um, uh, Mr. Clyde, Andrew Clyde, the 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 sponsor, the the prime sponsor's uh, press release on this bill. As assaults against American Second Amendment freedoms continue to emerge, so do treacherous threats that seek to weaponize taxation in order to price this constitutional right out of the reach of average Americans. I firmly believe that no American should be taxed on their enumerated rights, which is why I intend to stop the tyranny in his tracks by eliminating the federal excise tax on firearms and ammunition. So let's just dissect that real quick. Number one, there is no empirical proof <laughs> that that tax has done anything but help increase the sale of firearms over time, if anything, by providing more opportunities for hunting, more opportunities for shooting sports. So let's put that to bed. The second thing is, if this tax is an impingement on the on a, a tyrannical impingement, even using his words, on the Second Amendment and the right of people to acquire firearms, I would ask the sponsor to give firearms away for free because the prices that he's charging are tremendously higher than the tax. And I think, you know, if he wants to be <laughs> consistent in his logic, he needs to be going out and just giving them away as free. You know, give them his gifts to people because that would be more consistent. His pricing of those firearms is a bigger bridge to people acquiring them uh, than, than uh, if he's wanting to keep that same um, uh, consistent logic. That's why I think it's such a ridiculous statement that he's made that I'm going to use a ridiculous example to counter it. I keyed in on emerging Something that's been around for 85 years is an emerging threat, yeah. apparently. <laughs> well, I, I mean, Mike, I, taking that to an absurd extreme, and I don't know about Georgia, but in Tennessee, we have a constitutional right to hunt, right? Well, in Tennessee, we do. And it's, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a personal right that, that we put on the ballot in 2009. Um, but you have to be very careful about how you do that. For the exact reason you said, and and here, take it a little bit further, Bill. If I've got a fundamental right, then why do I have to abide by any trespass laws? Because trespass is not enshrined in the Constitution by any stretch. Not in Tennessee. I'd also ask another question, too. I'd ask the sponsor to talk to those that are paying the tax directly, what they think about it. You know, the firearms industry and the ammunition manufacturers. Um, and you know that T-shirt that I told you about at the beginning of this podcast? The one thing I didn't tell you is that it was made, this champagne of taxes, the Pittman-Robertson Act, it was made by Federal Premium Ammunition, the single largest payer of this excise tax. Right? The, the firearms industry, it's not just the hunters and anglers that support this. It's the firearms industry 
as a whole that also supports this tax because they benefit from the Pittman-Robertson Act because they recognize, like we've talked about, that it creates additional opportunity and and more recreational shooters and a greater demand for ammunition. And it's it's good for business to support this excise tax. And I would follow that up, David, as, as we've been you know talking about this with our partners and connections and so on. I haven't found one single sporting organization, one single manufacturer, anybody who supports this. That's why it's a little bit more dumbfounding even that, you know, those those organizations who have historically supported this tax would have been better consulted and um, perhaps prevented this from coming out. Seems seems pretty obvious if you went down that line. Well, here, here's an interesting thing too, guys. Um, when this bill was filed, there were 58 original co-sponsors. Now there's 55. And I can tell you there's two in Tennessee of the three coming off the bill because we've spoken to them. And, and, and the, the, the fortunate thing is that, you know, a lot of times when you're sitting on the floor of a legislative body and you've seen this, David, in your work, that, you know, somebody will come by, hey, will you get on this bill for me? Here's what it does. And you'll say, hey, yeah, that sounds good. And they'll give a verbal commitment. Their staffs maybe haven't dug into it as deep. Or the conservation staff didn't talk to the, to the Second Amendment staff in the office and they, they didn't, they got wires crossed. So when we spoke to members here in Tennessee and their staffs, and we, we got into the details of what the, what the impact that this legislation would have, they had no idea. And they were they were parroting the arguments of, well, this is about the Second Amendment. We were like, oh, no, this has very little, if anything, to do with the Second Amendment other than it supports it already. And here's how. And so I think that there is a a lot of education that's taking place kind of as this issue matures around the country where staff are starting to hear from multiple people and, and folks that support campaign supporters are calling them and saying, look, what in the world are you doing? Why are you doing this? And then they're saying, oh, wait a minute, I'm on this bill. We've made the request of the three members in Tennessee that are on the bill to get off the bill, and two have told us they would, and we have not finished with uh, working with the third. So we think we'll be able to pull three off of it beyond the three that have already jumped off. You know, if I can put an exclamation point on what you just said, Mike, um, it, to, to, it would be to say, it is actually pretty rare once somebody has sponsored a bill in Congress to then turn around and take your name off of it. And this is actually something I, it's, it's great. This came up. I just learned this, this week, how this works. I didn't realize this when you, when, when a member of Congress sponsors a bill in order to be taken off that it's a public process, they have to go to the floor and publicly state that they want to be taken off of that bill as a sponsor. It can become an embarrassing moment of why was I on it in the first place and now I have to get off of it. And so it's it's actually pretty rare uh, that that actually happens. Usually what will happen is they'll get real quiet about it, wait until this term of Congress ends, and then next time when the bill is introduced, you just won't see their name on it in the next round of introduction. So to take this active step to take it off now signals, the reason I want to put the exclamation point on it, it signals how effective one, you know, the the hunting and angling community is in the in their um, advocacy efforts to to you know to educate members of Congress about this, but it also really highlights, underscores, bolds, whatever you want to say, uh, 
how successful the Pittman-Robertson Act has been for 85 years, that once they get that information and hear from the, their constituents that are hunters and anglers or just general conservationists and, and hear from organizations like yours, Mike, um, how quickly, I mean, we're talking within a couple of days of, of co-sponsoring that they're removing their names from it when they realize what a gigantic mistake it is. And so, you know, I, I, it just, to me, it feels like we need to keep up that momentum and, you know, and we need, we really need the public at large to be calling into their congressmen and women. And and as even those that aren't on it, thank them for not being on it. Those that are on it, educate them, let them hear from it so that, so that, Pittman Robertson is never used as a messaging bill or a weapon or or anything uh, in the future. They recognize this is pretty. This is a pretty sacred thing, pretty sacrosanct, sacrosanct thing for the for wildlife conservation in this country. Something I picked up real real early in conversations with a couple of non hunters, one of whom kind of borders on anti, I think, um, but they're they're in the conservation world. They were kind of quietly excited about this. Um, they they would love conservation funding to be coming from pl- anywhere other than sportsmen, uh, where where other voices can be elevated ahead of it, and they can prioritize things differently. Is there anything to that, or was do you think that's just a a one off? Go for it, Mike. <laughs> Everybody's ready to jump <laughs> on that one. Well, I I mean I think. Um... Let me put it this way, and if I miss the mark, you just move on to David. <laughs> if I was opposed to hunting, my strategy would be to tear down the foundations that have allowed for it to thrive. And the only way it, th- it thrives is through conservation. And so as a strategic target, that would be what I would do that answer it nice and simple i i i would i think that's very nice and simple i would also say though if you're truly a conservationist you don't want to do something that's going to negatively negatively impact wildlife and habitat and maybe if you if what you want to do is have more voices or or you know more seats at the table you know rather than touching this one look at other opportunities to increase funding other revenue streams that you can bring to the table in other ways to, to further enhance conservation, not, uh, not weaken it, uh, to try and get yourself a seat at the table. Cause we know how hard it is to, to increase funding. Like, right. You know, I, so I, I would push back on, on that particular individual or anybody that, that thinks that way is if you're truly a conservationist, like the answer isn't to, to reduce money for conservation. Really what that does is takes away some seats at the table. No matter how you slice it, it, it takes away some of those, that funding, that power, that prowess to, to do wildlife conservation. But, you know, I think we've been talking almost an hour here and so we're going to wrap up, but uh, I, I'm, I'm looking at this as an opportunity, right? We, we take, I think sometimes the Pittman-Robertson Act and, and that conservation funding for granted it's just something we're all used to. We've bought ammo and, and guns and fishing stuff for years and years. And the Dingle Johnson, I would include there. And and we have to remain vigilant and committed to it. And, you know, Bill's tired of hearing me say this because I think I say it about every third or fourth episode. But, 
You know, we can't have this amazing privilege, this thing we talked about in the beginning, this, this, you know, just model for the world of how to manage and have abundant wildlife. We can't have that without the obligation to take care of it and stay diligent and pay attention to things like this. And so I'm hoping this will get people's radar uh, up and their antenna up and they'll pay attention to this and they'll call these guys and, and we'll call on Mr. Clyde, Representative Clyde, to, to pull this bill. It's not a good bill. It's misguided. Let, let's take this thing down and, and talk about the real things we need to do in wildlife conservation. And with this with this podcast, we'll put some links out there. We, we put out a press release recently. Um, there's some other resources. Uh, I'm sure, Mike, if you have any from Tennessee you want us to include, we'll put some resources in there so you can go find out about this. But this is you know, House Bill 8167 from Representative Clyde in Georgia. Go look it up, see what it is, and get engaged. Um, and, and we'll try to provide some more opportunities to do that here in the future. I'm going to try to send us out like that, but I'm going to ask each of you for, for parting words. What do you think, Mike? Start us off. Well, I think you, you make a good point, Aaron, in those closing comments that, that, you know, I think the biggest enemy we face in the sporting community is apathy. And we, we get comfortable. 85 years is a long time. And we get used to things happening a certain way. And then all of a sudden, somebody brings up a crazy idea. And we're sitting here evaluating some of the most fundamental pieces of the movement that we've helped create over decades. And my concern is we're seeing more and more and more of that. And, and on the on the same sense, we're also seeing opportunities for big gains like the Great American Outdoors Act, the Recovering America's Wildlife Act. So it's really incumbent upon the movement, especially the, the, the hunting and anglers, hunters, hunters and anglers that form kind of the core of the of the conservation movement from our perspective to stay engaged, to do as much as you can to let the democratic process work for conservation. And that means you've got to be active in an organization at some level, uh, or at least uh, educating yourself at some level, like National Wildlife Federation or Tennessee Wildlife Federation. Um, and there are a lot of other great organizations out there, but just don't sit on the sidelines. Please engage because if we, we don't, if we don't have people engaged, we don't have a movement. And if we don't have a movement, then things like this can gain, uh, more momentum and 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 you know I don't think that uh, I don't think that this one's going to go uh, and towards a passage point or anything like that. But we're going to make sure that it doesn't. And and we but we need as many people echoing that sentiment as we can, as David and you referred to earlier. What about you, David? Give us something. Give them something really wise to go away on here. Well, oh, Mike stole my answer. Yes. <laughs> no, um, you know, I, you know, Mike's hundred percent right. So I agree with everything he said there. And I, I just add just something real simple. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Like, like we've got something that has worked and worked exceptionally well, um, for 85 years at a time where it's hard to find things that have worked exceptionally well for a really long time that are universally supported, uh, or nearly universally supported. You know, you know, find something else, some other federal program that has this level of, of support and success. That's hard to do. It's hard to do. Um, 
this is this is a bedrock law, a bedrock fund, bedrock excise tax for conservation. It's been successful in bringing wildlife back from the brink. It's going to continue to do that if we don't mess with it. Uh, and I'll just reiterate what my T-shirt says: it's the champagne of taxes, right? Just and I'm not a guy that likes taxes. This is one that I'm that I will proudly, proudly uh, contribute to. That I'll be part of. You know, early on, I said if there's a if there's any positive out of this, it's a good opportunity. You know, sportsmen go to work, raise their families, hunt and fish whenever they get a chance, and and they don't spend a lot of time thinking about this for the most part. So something like this comes up, you're maybe not educated on it, and understandably so. This is a great opportunity for listeners. You've listened to this. Talk to your hunting buddies. I mean, a lot of mine don't know much about this, and I've had several call me. It's a good opportunity to talk and educate your friends. Um, and, and, you know, Mark Twain once said, a man who doesn't read has no advantage over a man who can't. And, and I would say the same thing about utilizing your voice as a sportsman. A man who doesn't speak has no advantage over a man who can't. So use your voice. I love it. Those were some wise words. And, and I feel inspired to, to go dive in a little bit more on this and some other things. You know, this is it, it's kind of hopefully we can use this as one of those fire up the base kind of moments. The, the sportsmen and women will come out of the woodwork and, and do this. So thank you all for being on. Uh, we'll put some more uh, information in the show notes. Hope this helped folks unpack this. Go out there and get engaged. And uh, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. For more great content, check out NWF Outdoors social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Connect with us. We want to hear from you. Send us your ideas for podcast guests and questions in the comments. We are NWF Outdoors. think with four of us spread out on a tiny island that the task of tagging a whitetail would not be a big thing. But as I've learned, no matter where I've been, whitetails can be damn tricky. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.